Uh, hello and welcome to the latest instalment of the Empire of the Cop podcast. Uh, we've got a full setup here today. We've got Peter Kenny Jones and friend of the show, Steve Carson, and of course a very special guest, uh, Chris Roberts. Uh, we'll be discussing uh, Chris's book at, at some length. Uh, it's a football uh, greater than anything. How football has brought out the worst in so many of the sports they love. Uh, now, Chris, um, so I, I believe it's, it's my understanding that you. you Written, you wrote this book uh, to discuss the dark side um, of football, um, and, and of course, you know, importantly, how players' mental health uh, are affected by the sport. Because obviously, in, in the modern day and age, we, we've got things like social media, which I would assume plays a massive part uh, in, in your book, just as much as it does um, in reality. Um, could you just explain to us sort of what what, what prompted you to, to, to write the book uh, in, in the first place? Um, so the book itself um, has actually come about because of my own issues with depression um, and my own mental health. Um, so unfortunately, two years ago, I lost my dad. Um, he died during COVID and he was the person really who gave me that love of football. Do you know what I mean? Him and my granddad, um, you just grow up, don't you, really, as a kid with your dad and watching football and stuff. And that love for football for me was, I tweeted this out the other day, actually, was actually growing up watching non-league football. So I'm a season ticket holder at Liverpool, but I feel like um, quite a lot of the time, you know, my first heroes in football were like them non-league players because I saw them up close and personal. Um, so my dad was a physio for various clubs, Prescott Cables, uh, Marine, Southport, and he went as far as Telford um, down in the Midlands. Um but I just obviously grew up loving football. Um, but unfortunately, when he died, um, although I'd had issues with my mental health in the past, it was a little bit like the tip of the iceberg, really. And um, I was in a bad way, really. Um, things like suicidal thoughts and things just really in a dark place, really. Um, and fortunately, um, after a long time um, of trying to deal with the issues myself, I actually reached out and got support from somewhere called Sean's Place, which is a mental health charity in Liverpool. Um, and they were really like a saviour for me, really. And um, the idea about writing a book just come up out of the blue, really, uh, helping a friend um, try and find some re references for a book he was writing. And um, in that time, just my mind was just focused on one thing and them dark thoughts seemed to disappear for a bit. And I thought, do you know what? This could be something that, could try and help me with this mental health um, battle that I'm going through. Um, it doesn't cure it, you know what I mean? But especially when you are suffering from mental health, it's obviously very important to keep your mind occupied. Um, some people will go to the gym. Um, <laughs> I went down a different route and sat down on me, basically on my bum for a long time and started writing a book. Um, and doing it, it, I just, it honestly, the book saved me really because it gave me something to aim for. Um, because, unfortunately, not just men, this happens with women as well. People are good at hiding um, how hurt they are, really, and how they're suffering. And um, I'm a school teacher by trade, and I could go in all day and have a laugh and a joke with the kids, and you wouldn't have thought there'd be anything wrong, probably. Obviously, people knew his dad's dad. He's probably still a bit sad, you know what I mean? But deep down, as soon as I finished work, and I was not busy, and I had that time where there's nothing to occupy my mind, it was... It was a really dark place, so the book saved me in that sense, and um, that's why I wrote the book. Um, and for all I knew, it might have only just been a manuscript, and 
Um, I started sending it out to various people and knew who'd been involved in books before. And they said that you're actually onto something here. This is looking good. And um, I linked it to my own self with my mental health. And it's showing people that we like describe footballers as superheroes, don't we? Do you know what I mean? When I was a kid, a non-league footballer was like an idol to me. Um, but really that fellow was working a nine to five job and then playing football. But we treat our stars now like you, Mo Salas, and that like you're a superhero. And in some ways, like, you think they are really, aren't you? Do you know what I mean? Especially Salad and the way he breaks down boundaries and stuff like that. But um, these people are suffering from mental health as well. And you mentioned social media. It's not just social media. And the book delves into different topics where, unfortunately, the pressure of playing football gets the footballers, really. Um, and we focus on two main things in the book, winning at all costs and greed, um, which greed is obviously a really big one in football. But that winning at all costs, comes out of harm to these players really and we forget about that because like I said we treat them as superheroes but the humans you know what I mean and um, we forget that sometimes yeah yeah. well thanks thanks for going through it there and, I, and just what Farrell said as well thanks for coming on I think this will um, be a book that helps a lot of people and there's a a lot of people who deal with, with similar stuff, suffering and, and you know, come up with family loss and, and worse and more widespread. But it's important to talk about these things. I know you said it's for everyone, but I think we all know the, the impact of men and I think we're all of a similar age here. We don't talk about things like this, so well done for doing it. Um, obviously, I'd seen before my mate, my, well, our mate Mark sent it over to me. I'd seen it being shared quite a bit on social media and you've got quite a few big names backing you, I think, who have um, shared it, which obviously shows the reach it's getting. Just uh, maybe what type of feedback have you had so far from it from, from since well, you released it? It's been unbelievable, really, the support. I think Farrell started by saying, like, social media affects these players and it does. It's negative, do you know what I mean, for some of them. And you just have to look at the reaction to the Euro final, don't you, with England players. But um, social media has allowed me to reach people I didn't ever think I'd be able to reach. Um, I've had people like Jamie Webster, who's my mate from the match anyway. Um, I've grown up going the match with him. But... He's a big advocate for um, mental health himself and he sings about this and thankfully he shared that on his Instagram so he got a big, obviously, following following him and then unbelievably like Paddy the Baddy as well and, and again, another great uh, role model for mental health. He talked about losing his friend, Ricky, um, who's actually related to one of my friends and that's what this book is about. I just hope that it helps people to realise they might need help and I don't want people to think it's just me talking about mental health all the way through. The introduction introduces my problems, but then it's really interesting facts about different walks of football and life, really. And I do touch on some of my own issues with chapters if it's relevant, but it's really interesting just to look at these different things. And when I was researching it myself, some of it I did know, some of it I think is just like mind-boggling, really. And it is just to prevent people from, unfortunately, thinking their only option is to commit suicide. And suicide rates in England and the UK is just shocking. Do you know what I mean? 5,219 people last year killed themselves. And um, the proportion of them who were males was a lot higher. Um, and only 9% of males who were die. One in six people are depressed, but only 9% of the males who are depressed will reach out and actually ask for help. So... Um, I've had feedback off people saying, oh, I'm, I'm actually going and going to go to the doctor for this now. Um, reading your book, just reading the introduction really on Amazon really resonated with me that I've got issues that I can't help, do you know what I mean? And you can talk to family and friends, but they're not professionals. So um, 
you can go to places like Sean Place or you can go to the doctors and they can help you with different things. But I've had lots of people reaching out and it's been amazing. And obviously, like you said, we've had some very famous people and the Anfield Rap and Spy and Cop have helped me out with that. And we've had um, Everton fans group called County Road Bobblers helping me as well. And I've had people from America buying the book, people from the Canada buying the book. It's been crazy, to be fair. Um, but it's all raising, it's raising money for Sean's place, which again is important. Um, so yeah, being being a bit of a wild two weeks to be fair. <laughs> well, I'll go on again. Sorry, just a quick one then, because I know we were talking about um, last time um, when we were talking about after the match against Crystal Palace, and I know you, we jokingly said you can't be talking about mental health and then having a go with Fabinho afterwards. <laughs> So yeah. maybe we just touch on that, and I'm not I'm not singling you out at all. I and mean, I know this is obviously something that football fans do. You go in the pub after, and you, you slay the players' performance, and then you know, maybe you, you have a couple too many pints, and you go on Instagram and say you were terrible today. It's not something I've done, but it's something you see across social media, which yeah. definitely shouldn't be happening. So I know I don't know if you spoke personally with footballers or examples of that, but do you oh, think that this, this culture of like social media abuse will be affecting footballers today? Well, yeah, to be fair, what I did is I did it like a big wide overall topic, really. So I've looked at like a range of things, you know, linking it to the win at all costs. And um, moving away a little bit from Fabinho, who actually probably does fall into this because his drop-off in form probably was after them injuries, wasn't it, really? He had a couple on the bounce. And I think one of the ones who gets a bad slack, and to be fair, I would never go on social media and slag a football player off. It's just not not about me. I don't get what people would gain from that, really. It doesn't make you feel better. It doesn't make that person feel better. And the player doesn't willingly go out there and not perform, do they? But one who gets, obviously, a bad press quite a lot with Liverpool fans is Naby Keita. Um, one of the chapters is actually about injuries. Um, and obviously, Keita's injury record hasn't been the best, but... He's not going to willingly be injured on purpose, is he? Um, he's a professional footballer. He wants to be out there playing football, do you know what I mean? And I looked at that um, in depth in a chapter, like looking at various examples, Daniel Sturridge being a big one. Um, he got a bad reputation towards the end of his time at Liverpool and he even had managers questioning him whether it was all mental and things like that. And in the chapter, um, I've used quotes that he's used in interviews before because he's quite a... Um, quite a private person really but it was quite sad to see like he spent like mil- like half a million pounds he said he thinks on like personal trainers and that to try and overcome these injuries and he still gets labelled as like a croc really basically and Kate is probably the modern day version of that for Liverpool and I've literally just seen on Twitter then somebody um, slagging Calvert-Lewin off and I think for Everton he's probably gets a, quite a lot of stick for that Um so Injuries is a big part of the book, looking at that and um, like how that affects the mental health. And we go through a lot of different things. Then obviously for that winning at all costs, like performance enhancing drugs, but also recreational drugs, really. Um, performance enhancing drugs, obviously, to try and get an edge over the opposition. That's how desperate some people are, that they put the bodies at risk. And obviously, if you're taking performance enhancing drugs, it negatively affects your mental health. Um and there's quite a few cases of that. Um, there's 12 Premier League players who've tested positive in the last 10 years for performance enhancing drugs, but none of them have been banned. So they were um, actually given leeway by the Premier League and they said that it was therapeutic use exemption. Um, obviously, that 
crazy room started about Liverpool with the inhalers and stuff like that, which is not proven anywhere, do you know what I mean? Um, I think it was Andy Grant who started it, did he? I think as a joke on one of his podcasts at one point. Sorry, Andy, if you didn't. But I think it, got, it went away crazy, didn't it? A big mad room. Uh, Liverpool giving hailers and that's why we were basically winning all these competitions and things like that. Um, the only player who's actually been banned from the Premier League is a 15-year-old who was using growth hormones, which um, that goes on to a bigger problem, really, doesn't it? Of like parents and things like that pushing these kids to um, be a footballer, basically. Um, and the statistics for that are crazy. Like 0.5% of kids in an academy at the age of nine will make it as a professional. Um, and we all dream of becoming a footballer. Um, well, quite a lot of us. I know it was a dream of mine. And unfortunately for some kids, that won't become a true. It never become true for me. But luckily, I was quite level-headed and knew where my limitations were, to be fair. Um, but for some kids who were actually in the academy systems, and that if you get a YTS, you think you've already made it anyway. Um, and I think uh, Robson Canu used to play for Wales and West Brom on a tweet as well today he was saying like he saw these kids playing for England under 16s in his academy who were ahead of him but they lost that they thought they'd already made it at that point and these kids don't play football anymore and he's obviously went on to have a good career and he said it was because I stayed level headed and that but you've got to be extremely lucky to make it as a footballer Um, and the issue is they use performance enhancing drugs to stay at the top there's some crazy names that come into there I think somebody tweeted it out the other day but it was in the book when I found out it was quite interesting Guardiola is one who tested positive for performance enhancing drugs when he left Barcelona and went to Siena um, in Italy Um, but then you've got like your recreational drugs which they're not using them to be better at football they're using that to deal with the stress of being a footballer really Um, you've got alcohol abuse which is rife in football which isn't as bad nowadays Um, because obviously it's a lot more professional now, which is a positive, but you used to have the big drinking culture in football, but that recreational drugs is still definitely there. And you've got your likes of Mewtwo, um, Mark Bosnich back in the day, who were completely thrown under the bus by Chelsea, in fairness. Like, if someone's using recreational drugs, they're not using it to get better at footy, are they really? They're using it to deal with their issues. And rather than the club supporting them, rather than the FA keeping the names quiet, they put them out in the press and completely threw them under the bus and they were banned from football for using performance enhancing drugs and cocaine is not helping you to play well in football I don't think Um, I don't take cocaine I've never taken cocaine but I highly doubt it's going to be a performance enhancing drug is it really Um, but there's more examples of that as well you've got like Jake Livermore um, who they showed a bit of leniency to the FA but still should have his name been put out in public he just lost his son He'd taken cocaine in a moment of madness and they put his name out in the press. Unfortunately, they give him a suspended sentence. And I've seen how it affects people. My friend, he was a professional footballer. He was banned for two and a half years. Um, he was struggling with his anxiety. He took cocaine and playing in League Two for Accrington. And he was banned from football then for two and a half years. His career gone. Um, he'd worked so hard for it. And the thing is, he tested positive in a match situation. If you test positive in training, they give you a rehab program, which, fair enough, that's going to help someone. Do you know what I mean? They've made a mistake. They need rehab for that problem that they may have. It might have just been a one-off, but to then ban some of them just because it's in a match is a bit crazy. Um, and you see it all over. The NFL does it as well with 
cannabis and stuff like that. But they're like 10 game bans. They're not banning people for years and years. So um, we had that and then injuries. And the book just goes into like different examples of this. And obviously you've got your most like <laughs> the person who probably comes into a lot of chapters in this. You could probably write a whole book about the dark side of football just based on Maradona. But he comes into that injuries category. He comes into the recreational drugs. He comes into the performance enhancing drugs because... People see that picture of him at US 94 when his eyes are like bulging out of his face and they're like, oh, yeah, he's on coke. He's a cokehead. Um, yeah, he didn't test positive for cocaine there. He tested positive for clenbuterol, which is like uh, a weight loss um, performance enhancing drug. Um, because obviously Argentina depended on him that much that he was nearly like two stone overweight and he had like two weeks, three weeks to lose that weight. And they sent him to a big camp and stuff like that. And that's him putting his body at risk, but that's the country, do you know what I mean? Because they needed that talisman there for them to hope what they thought would hopefully get them through um, that tournament. Um, and then obviously the book goes all over. It's got like match fixing, for example. Um, match fixing obviously is a prime example of winning at all costs, but you look at Calcio Poly, um, I don't know whether you're aware of that. Juventus were obviously relegated. They were the key one from that. Um, but there was quite a lot of clubs involved. They were basically bribing the referees. And do you think Barcelona are under investigation for it at the minute, to be fair? But I'd already wrote that chapter, otherwise I would have waited for Barca to come out and decide to start match-fixing. Um, but yeah, they so they were charged with match-fixing. And then you probably... One, that is crazy. Like If you ask somebody who was the only French team to win the Champions League, and you probably know it, but if you ask this small child... So obviously, if I ask the kids in my class... Who's the only French team to win the Champions League? They probably go, oh, PSG, PSG, got to be PSG. They've obviously never won it. They got beaten in the final, but Marseille were the only French team to ever win the Champions League. And they were actually relegated the same season um, for match fixing um, in France. Um, again, paying opposition players to basically lift the foot up so that they could score a goal, um, which you think about is crazy, but it was only 30 years ago. Um well, it said it seemed crazy. I'm 30 now. It was when I was born, 1993. But um, I think it's still quite. I'd still count that as modern football, really. Do you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, it. We go through like, and then we go into the greed side of things, and the big one for that is obviously your governance and uh, governance of football, ownership of football, which is high in the public agenda at the minute. Obviously, the World Cup was a big one. Um, obviously, UEFA's handling of. Paris was horrendous, you know what I mean? And how they've tried to push that under the thing. But the book shows you that obviously there's not just them cases of them being corrupt, basically. Um, don't sue me, UEFA, but um, I think that's a true statement. You are corrupt. Um, and you've got a big chapter, I think, and one where I give a bit more of my own experiences with this. I'm not a gambling addict, but I write about gambling in football and in sport. Um and I talk about, obviously, it's crazy the amount of sponsors we have for betting companies. You can't avoid it, can you, really? Um, there's a, a most exposures ever in one game is 716 times you saw the betting logo um, when it was Newcastle versus Wolves. So that's one every six seconds you're seeing a betting company flash up on the screen. Um, and when I was writing the book, I, I'm not a gambling addict, but... I realised I'm an at-risk gambler is what I would be described as because, um, sorry, anybody else who receives these free bets and things like that, but if you're receiving random free bets off Bet365 and things like that, 
they would class you as an at-risk gambler, basically, because their algorithms show them people who bet quite a lot. And if they give you a free bet, um, obviously there's that risk of you. You're going to do the free bet, obviously, but then you get that little buzz to then go and have another bet, don't you, really? And they're very smart the way they do that. For the book, I closed all my accounts down and the free bets stopped. So I was like, oh, maybe this is true, do you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, that's just a brief overview of the book. But if you've got any questions, sorry for like, <laughs> the last... I don't know whether I've rambled on for too long, sorry. No, 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 not at all. I think there's, there's clearly, I mean, the landscape that you've had to sort of unpack um, in this book, I mean, it seems a phenomenal amount of work, um, you know, not not just mental health, but just, you know, just, just the sheer span of it. Um, so I think it just, it just sounds impressive uh, more more than anything. And we'll certainly, we're going to come back to that um, towards, uh, towards the end of this chat. Um, obviously, it's, it, it's a, it, it seems a, compar- a comparatively insignificant uh, topic, uh, but when we're discussing uh, Liverpool and sort of the current issues that they face, sort of particularly in the middle of the park, the, we inevitably go towards uh, transfers, which I'm, I'm sure, you know, has a, has a host of issues. And it's entirely linked, of course, to the level of criticism that our, our current crop of players uh, receive and the level of abuse they receive um, on online. Um, speaking, I suppose, about a more positive topic and trying to avoid uh, <laughs> slagging anyone off online. Um, I mean, we've seen plenty of links emerge uh, between Liverpool and Brighton and Hove Albion midfielder um, Alexis McAllister, who was, of course, involved heavily when we were speaking about Maradona and Argentina. He was involved in Argentina's uh, World Cup final win and played a pivotal part in that campaign. He's been massively important, of course, uh, for Roberto Zazabi is Brighton. Um, what, what, what's interesting is it seems that Liverpool invited his father, an agent, uh, to to Anfield to watch our hammering uh, at Madrid's hands. Uh, so perhaps not the best, not the best of games. Um, I, I wanted to come to, to you, Steve, firstly, about this, because um, I think, I mean, we were speaking about this before the podcast, and the most interesting thing for me is that statistically, he seems the closest thing that we're going to be able to get uh, to Genie to Wijnaldum in terms of you know not not just his his durability but you know all, all the little things that made him so valuable and so underappreciated um, in prior iterations of the Jurgen Klopp side in terms of you know knowing when to recycle a ball paying off the tactical debts of his teammates allowing his you know his midfield teammates to flourish even at the expense of you know his, his own talent um, I, yeah I just wanted to get your thoughts on sort of the rumours there whether you feel um, this is this is an option. Liverpool should seriously be pursuing. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, we're not really in a position now where we can be picky with, you know, midfielders coming into the team. I mean, we're at a point now where, with all due respect, that the, the prospect of Arthur coming back into the team is exciting and he's not really kicked the ball for us yet. So the fact that that is, is such a positive uh, potential thing for us says a lot about the current form our players are, are in. Um, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, as we were chatting before, um, Fadal, about McAllister, you know, you highlighted that he, he is sort of statistically quite similar to Gini Wijnaldum. Uh, and obviously he's 24 years of age, played a big part in Argentina's World Cup success. And there does seem to be some solid links there with Liverpool. Surely it's a good time for both Brighton and him to maybe make a bit of a, a, bit of a move in the market. 
could be something that works out for Liverpool. Obviously, there's a lot of talk about players like Bellingham and, and you know, Casido and, and, and players like this. But, yeah, obviously, someone like McAllister would definitely add something to the squad. He has that, you know, age. Um, he's under the age of 25, which, you know, means that, you know, he's got a future ahead of him as opposed to, you know, with all due respect, bringing in, like, Thiago's, you know, got a handful of, of world-class years in him, but obviously he's not really a long-term signing, whereas someone like McAllister could be, and maybe that sort of, like, diamond in, in, in the midfield that we could have going forward. Yeah, if if he does have those similarities of, of Gina Van Alden, admittedly, I've not seen a great deal of him. Obviously, I've seen bits of him in the Premier League and, obviously, at the World Cup too, but uh, I don't know based on how I've seen myself, um, how similar it is to Alden. But if he does have that sort of... A word that I often use to describe Alden when he was at Liverpool was that he was a bit like a midfield octopus in that, you know, he was in the middle of the park, but he was everywhere at the same time. Um, and, yeah, like you said, Farrell, he, he sacrificed himself for, for the benefit of others. And we've lacked that spark in midfield to, to link us with the final third. We've got the attacking class we've seen that Darwin Nunez, Mohamed Salah, obviously on their day, unbelievable footballers. But we've we've missed that midfield link. Um something we've we've really kind of you know, as I say, we, we we've lacked it. So yeah, bringing in someone like McAllister, I think it, it, it could be a right move, but it you know, I'm not I'm not an expert on the fella. I've not watched enough Brighton really to say how much he'd improve us, but like I say, I'd take him in a heartbeat right now if I could, because we're lacking depth in midfield. Um and we could really do with that that bright spark. And if that's him, great. You know, I'll never turn you know as a put a sign if Jurgen Klopp gives it a green light. No, all, all fair all fair points. Um I, I think, you know, I, I, t- I touched on durability for a reason. Um, I was quite shocked myself when I looked at sort of the, the stats associated. Um, Pete, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you, so, so basically across Gino Wijnaldum's Liverpool career, he, he missed less than 6% of all the available league games he could possibly play for Liverpool. Less than 6%. I'm going to give you a chance to guess what Alex, Alexis McAllister's league availability uh, has been for Brighton ever since his move away uh, from Argentina. Well, I feel like it's going to be high because you've put it on me toes. Um, I, you know me, Brighton expertise. Ninety-five uh, percent of games he's played in. They are. Let's be you're, you're very close. You're ah. very close. I, I've had a look at the figures, um, courtesy of Transfer Market, um, and it is ninety-six point five two percent off the bar of the one hundred and fifteen top-flight games that were up. For grabs now, admittedly, I think he's, he's he's had a few spells on the bench, though I, I don't think they're it's not a significant enough number to suggest uh, that it would in any way impact uh, his level of durability. Um, but it's a it's a pretty remarkable uh, figure. And then we start to take into account his statistical similarity, the fact he can play as a six, an eight, a ten. He's on seven league goals uh, currently this season. Um, I mean, the, the similarities are, are, are stark and a, a little frightening, um, if you can sort of consider how the kind of role Van Alden used to play at Newcastle before you know we snapped him up and he sort of became a bit more reserved uh, under the, the COP regime. Um, I suppose the question I'm, I'm going to fire to you, Pete, uh, before I move the conversation on uh, to Chris regarding um, what, what's coming next um, is... Do you believe in terms of what we're looking at for the summer? Obviously, Jude Bellingham's name keeps getting, keeps cropping up. 
It's the most important thing for Liverpool this summer to look for balance. Above all else, do we need balance? Yeah, but I think you know, first and foremost, it's, you've got to replace the players who are going, and that looks like it's, you know, it's going to be Naby Keita, Oxley Chamberlain, and possibly James Milner. Um, I think James Milner got a new contract, which I'd be happy with, but if he does go, you need another leader in the dressing room. So although Steve was saying... Maybe you don't want too many Thiago's who haven't got many years left. We brought Milner in basically to replace Gerard's leadership. And if it is some, if he does go, we need someone like that. Cater and Oxley Chamberlain, some people might be overly critical and say, what do they offer? But they're probably more of our attacking minded midfielders of the people who can play across the middle today. And, you know, if we do bring in a Bellingham, he's definitely a box to box. We look like with Bajetic, we've got someone who can play in the six and the eight, as everyone says nowadays. And then, it's looking towards the future, and McAllister said it looks like someone who, who would be a good mix. Like why now than was, you know? He, although he did have to play one time, he played at the back, and he's he's played in a holding role. You know, he he really operated well alongside someone like Fabinho or Henderson playing in a deeper role. So yeah, you do need that balance of someone who can link it between you know the number six who goes who wins the ball back and then put it into the the front three. And you know, why was often criticised for the goals and assists he wasn't getting. But sometimes it's that third pass or fourth pass before the goal is can be the hardest one to make and often comes after the tackle. So we just need players who, who probably know they're going to come to, to Liverpool and not be top of the stats chart and not be looking at how many assists and goals you've got. It's going to be how many miles covered and maybe how many tackles you make and pre-assist are probably going to be the biggest things they get. I was listening to, to Rafa Benitez the other day and he was saying how a lot of people these days, the transfers are based solely on stats and Obviously, I know you were talking about this stat bomb thing that shows how similar uh, McAllister is to Wijnaldum, but you're saying a lot of players now, they just look at who has the best stats and then you have four or five different clubs coming in for those players. So we know what Brighton are like with selling players and you know, Caicedo was apparently a massive link in January and it's gone a bit cold, but obviously that's because we're nowhere near the summer yet. But it's going to be interesting to see if we do try and buy him because Brighton don't sell their players for cheap and if, if they're going to let Caicedo go, they're not going to be selling McAllister as well for a low price. So we're going to be paying a lot of money. And a lot of people like to criticise our owners. And if we do sign a Jude Bellingham, we're not going to have a massive war chest of, of money left. So you're looking at people like Mason Mount with a year left on the contract. And maybe we do get an older midfielder maybe to come in. Or obviously people say we've got enough or sign another younger midfielder. But I don't have all the names and answers. But yet the balance will be will be key in order that we can help the likes of Bajetic or maybe Harvey Elliott, Carvalho coming up in the future and also help the legs of Fabinho, Thiago Henderson as they enter the, the final years of their career as well. No, absolutely. Well, in terms of you mentioned the numbers and Brighton certainly wouldn't be looking to sell them on the cheap. The number that's been bandied around according uh, to reports is in the region of £70 million, pounds, um, which you know is an awful lot of money uh, for a midfielder. Um, but if you're looking at sort of what Liverpool seem to have been really missing, you know, beyond legs, dynamism, and, you know, that, that sort of primal drive just to, you know, hunt down the ball and press, it, 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 seem, it seems to be the balance. You know, we seem to survive more or less without it last, you know, in the prior season. Uh, but it's becoming increasingly clear that, uh, you know, just bringing legs alone, you, you need to look at it from a tactical perspective too. Um, you know, I, I think... Personally, I think that'll be quite important, but it'll be, it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out uh, with our 
summer transfers. Uh, but for now, that's enough nattering on about the summer window that is miles away. Liverpool do have to entertain a trip uh, to, well, the host Wolves, rather, tomorrow evening. Um, <laughs> Chris, seems, seems to be a team that we teams that we're constantly coming up against uh, with varying and varying levels um, of success. Um, I think, you know, from my point of view, I think the most important thing um, following the, the draw against Palace is that we didn't lose, um, especially given how, how much you know confidence would have sort of taken a knock um, after Madrid. Um, what are your what are your thoughts coming ahead ahead of this one? Um, well, it's funny you say it, isn't it? Like we played them four times, haven't we, this season? I think it's a record for the earliest time playing for a team four times. But um, obviously, Wolves are at the bottom bottom of towards the bottom of the league and I think they're a lot better than that really when you look at them. Um, obviously, um, I, I was speaking to people about the match the other day and they were like, oh yeah, I'm glad we're a nil-nil draw and I think that shows you obviously how much our confidence has taken a dint really that you're happy with a nil-nil draw with Crystal Palace and that's no offence to Crystal Palace because first half they probably had the better of it really, didn't they? Um, and I think if they had a bit more fight and will and really if Zaha was playing you think it would have been a little bit harder for us um, but obviously it was important to keep a clean sheet after how poor defensively we were against Real Madrid um, Wolves aren't an easy team to play against though um, they're obviously very quick on the break so they're going to set up to counter attack us and that's what they did in the FA Cup and at home and we were quite lucky really to come away with the draw there obviously they had the disallowed goal and um, it's it, 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 you probably know how they'll set out. They'll probably play a three-five-two, or it usually works out five-three-two when these teams come to Anfield, and it makes it very difficult to break them down. And especially with our issues at the minute, where we're struggling to be creative, really, um, that's going to be very difficult for us to break down. So it's not going to be an easy game. Um, no game's easy in the Premier League, is what they always say. But I think it will be difficult to break them down tomorrow, um, and obviously. We could barely do with Nunes being back, but Klopp seems a bit... Um, he didn't give a certain answer about that, really, whether he will be back or not. Yeah, no, I, I think that it, it was glaring, wasn't it? I think that, that lack of sort of uh, intensity was often been labelled as, as chaos uh, from Darwin at Nunez. I mean, you have to, of course, factor in that, you know, Jürgen Jota got a man there coming back uh, from injury. And I think it, it, he's, he's one we've missed in general. You know, we've, how many games have we seen even when his own performance sort of seems lacking and he sort of pops up with that vital goal. But you can never, you know, if Jota starts again against Wolves, I don't think you can you can count him out, especially as he makes his way back to full fitness. Um, Pete, I mean, Chris has sort of rightly, you know, touched on sort of Wolves' form of, of late. They, they're kind of away from the relegation zone at the minute. I've got the table up here uh, to the Saturn 15th. So they're only three points. Um, away from Everton in 18th. Um, but it, I, I think in general, there seems to be an upward trend. I, I think we can reasonably predict they'll, they'll avoid the drop uh, this season. Um, what, what have been your, your thoughts on Wolves? Uh, anything that sort of particularly worries you sort of ahead of our encounter? Well, I think obviously before Lopetegui came in, they were, um, they were quite a boring Saturday. I think you know, they carried on for what they did last year where you, you went and didn't expect to see them score or concede, which coming off the back of the Palace game might set up for um, maybe more boring watching. But obviously, yeah, Lopetegui's come in and made them a bit more robust, but maybe a bit more exciting too. And we saw it, Molyneux, and they beat us 3-0. But I think 
you've got, I was going to say it's a one-off, but it wasn't. It's probably a seven-off because we've, we've had a few of them like that this season. But we, we went into that match with our confidence at rock bottom and we looked like we were seven-nil down before kick-off. And although it was nil-nil, and as Chris said, you know, we were kind of happy with the fact that we, we never conceded. But I think you have to view that Real Madrid game as definitely not. I know a lot of the, the rhetoric of the club was we were, they were happy with the first-half performance, which I think they should be. We were definitely started well, but that must have took give them a big knock. You know, we, we don't lose at home very often and to see five goals was massive and maybe did give everyone a bit more of a, a sobering view on where we were because confidence was getting a little bit high after Newcastle and Everton. But I think if we just view the, the Premier League, you know, take, it, take the Champions League results away. We've had seven points from the last three games and they, they were big games against Everton and Newcastle. We probably expected Palace to be the easiest of the three and this is the one we didn't win. We've had three clean sheets in a row, and I think we've just got to make sure against Wolves that we try and keep that clean sheet record going. We know that maybe they're not the biggest direct going forward, so it's just important to get that confidence back at the back because we saw Matip and Trent against Palace. They just both, they're passing at the start, just they both look like they were really lacking in confidence, and I wouldn't mind if we spent the first 10 minutes just passing it around the back and getting that superiority back in there and making us feel like we are unbeatable and we don't need Alisson to save us. But when we do, he's always there to help us. And I think that's that's the most important thing. And then obviously going to get a win would be massive. And we saw the atmosphere against Everton and, and against Real Madrid was massive. And I think, you know, we, we've had the flag day and we've had people saying we need a big atmosphere for Real Madrid and the UEFA protest. But I think this is probably the most important one for an atmosphere because it should always be big in the derby. It should always be big against Real Madrid. But Wolves at home is the type of game we've seen. The crowd may be a little bit quiet and, you know, people finishing work, maybe trying to finish half an hour early, get another pint in and, and hopefully we can go and sing a bit louder, make it intimidating, make it hard for Wolves. And just any win is a good win tomorrow. No, absolutely. I mean, Steve, Pete mentioned there, you know, seven and nine uh, from our last sort of three league games. I, I think we've seen so many times uh, this season it kind of teetered between, oh, you know, we're back and, oh, well, we're, we're crap. Um, it, and it, it does seem to be the case of a week-to-week kind of basis. But when you look at the figures there and you kind of, right, you put the Madrid results to one side, I think it'd, it'd be fair to do that. You know, you're coming across against utterly elite opposition there. You know, Liverpool aren't the Liverpool that challenged for a quadruple last term. I think it's very critical that everyone consider that. Um, Is there a case that perhaps fans and perhaps particularly online fans aren't considering the bigger picture? Yeah, I think I think there is a bit of that. I mean, it's it's like uh, James Milner said about the heads going down a little bit after uh, the Madrid game, and I mean that happens for the fans as well. Of course, you know um, what happened against Madrid. Honestly, going into the derby, I was a little bit worried that might happen against Everton. Uh, maybe not five two, but I was thinking, you know, there's potentially that we could get a hide. And thankfully, Everton are somehow having a worse season than we are. So there's always that. But, um, you know, yeah, getting slapped by Real Madrid at home is never nice. But like you say, you you, you have to just kind of focus on the Premier League and the players will want to just get back to it. Obviously, after, you know, what happened against Palace, they're going to want to just keep going. I feel like we say this every single week, whether it's on the podcast and the group chat or whatever, like, but we've just got to just get ourselves to get ourselves together again and just go again. You know, it's, it's the only way that we're going to get uh, through this, you know, rough period. Like Jurgen Klopp said, um, 
recently, which is it sort of ties into what you're saying about the bigger picture, is that this season is not one for the history books. Uh, anyone who's watched us this season can tell that that is going to be, you know, the case. I mean, hopefully we can, you know, you never know. There could be a medical against Real Madrid, but I'm not holding my breath for it this season. As long as we can save face, go and put up a good a good fight in Madrid, I'll, I'll be happy with that. And then we can, you know, whatever. The main thing this season is that we we do our best to get top four. And to do that, we've got a 10 games round. In the Premier League, like you say, seven points from the last nine. That's good momentum. Yeah, you know, it's hard to be pleased with what happened against Palace. But if we now, you know, like Pete said, Anfield, make it hostile. These are the big games for us. I don't really like quoting Pep Guardiola, but he was recently talking about Bristol City and the fact that that game for them in the FA Cup, it feels like a final and they're going to treat it like a final. That's what we need to do for every game this season. And we need to make sure that, you know, the, the home fans do make that sort of atmosphere there, get behind the players and just see ourselves out of the season. Um, it's one of them. Like, like Klopp says, it's not going to be a season for the history books. At the end of the day, Teams cannot dominate year after year after year. You know, it's it, we're not talking like Celtic, Bayern, Munich, Juventus. You know, Real Madrid have off years. Manchester United have, have a few off years. You know, it's ups and downs. So, yeah, like you say, Frau, big picture. I think this season we just need to just keep, keep you know, trundling along, get ourselves there. Hopefully we can snatch fourth. It's definitely within our capabilities on paper. You know, our squad is still up there with some of the best in the world, even though they aren't really showing it this season. Um, but, you know, there's no reason to, to to think that we can't overturn Wolves. They've been a little bit of a thorn on the side this season. Like uh, like Chris said there, we've we've, we've already met them uh, quite a few many times. I think I think yeah, this will be the fourth one, won't it? Uh, it's actually the, um, it's the fourth earliest we have played uh, the same side four times in a calendar year. This is a tweet earlier from from Michael Reed, who, who works for Opta. Um, so it's it's I think it's the earliest since 1991 we played um, Everton four times by about this time in the year. Uh, so you know it, it could be worse. I mean, it said there in the 1920s we played Manchester United four times in fe- before February, so that would have been even worse. But you know, at least it's Wolves, and you know, in theory, it's a team that we can we can turn over, and, and hopefully we do, and we keep things going in the league, and just cap, um, just kind of like put Europe to one side. You know, like you say, final. That's an elite football team we've played there. We are not playing elite football this season. It's not, you know, the end of the world if, you know, we don't do too well against Real Madrid. Just keep doing what we're doing in the league and we'll be all right in the end. I mean, I mean yeah, I think the important thing is to look at, you know, that first 20 minutes against Madrid, you, you could really see where the project is heading and you could really see how good it can be again. Um, of course, you know, we need the tools to get there again. That's no problem. Cops already mentioned it. Um, and Cop would agree with you, Steve. You know, I think he said himself that he believes We've still got the tools in the current squad to get top four football. Um, and, you know, hope, hopefully we can achieve that and, and you know, take another step closer with a, with a big win against Wolves and then hopefully another one after that against United. But that's, a, that's for another podcast at another time, I'm sure. Um, Chris, I wanted to come back to you and I want to come back to your book. Um, for anyone tuning in roughly around this point, uh, it's about football greater than anything, how football has brought out the worst in so many of the sports they love. Uh, Chris, uh, firstly, I mean, how, how can how can anyone go out and get your book, and how would you 
summarize it in less than 10 words <laughs> to anyone interested in the subject. Get your fingers ready. Yeah, here, here we go. Here we go. I do this to the kids. To be fair, they have to summarize stories in less than 10 words. <laughs> now I know how hard it is. Um, I'll try and summarize it into words. Uh, it's brilliant. Um, but um, I'll carry on speaking, not on my 10 words count. I'll just have the two. But I'm bad to say that because I wrote it. But I honestly think it is a really interesting book that. Um, people will find interesting and would love to read and the book's available on Amazon and I've actually been speaking to a local bookshop in Crosby today um, and they're going to stock it which is a positive as well because um, it's a really quite difficult self-publishing um, but the reason I did self-publish was so that we could raise a bit more money for charity which is obviously um, the key thing for the book. I just wanted to say on obviously the atmosphere and stuff like that and Liverpool at the minute, I mentioned this in the book really because um, Liverpool's last bad season, that season with Van Dijk injured and stuff was unfortunately the year my dad died in February time and to be fair, like although I love Liverpool, love football, I think you know just with what was going on it was just completely like we got beat in the derby at home and stuff didn't we and it was obviously COVID, it was hard and um, I think the first time I actually cheered when we scored and I, I broke down in tears to be fair because I knew he was going through the same thing was that Allison goal, um, you know, the header against West Brom and I think, I'm not saying Allison's going to jump up tomorrow and score a goal but I think we're one like big goal away from like um, hopefully turning the season round I know it's being a bit optimistic to say this but who says we don't beat United on Sunday do you know what I mean and you burst air bubble a little bit and I know we're talking about Wolves before that. Hopefully we pick up the win there. But that'd be a big momentum swing for us, do you know what I mean? And it would, like Steve said, you you can't give up on them, do you know what I mean? After how well they played for so long, uh, this Liverpool team. And hopefully a big win will push them on or a big goal, big moments, last minute winner would be brilliant, really. But maybe not for the heart. Maybe we want it a bit earlier than that. No, absolutely, absolutely. We'd certainly change the mood around it. it would certainly put things into perspective if we then go you know seven and nine how about 10 and 12 you know, and then you know then it really starts to the picture looks starts to look very different and you know support Jürgen's sort of thoughts on where we'll hopefully end up once the season draws to a close ahead of the a, a busy summer window uh, potentially uh, but Chris thank you very much uh, for popping on yes yes another book I'm gonna have to add uh, to my growing shortlist. Um, but yes, uh, the lovely Chris Robertson, we've been talking about football greater than anything, how football has brought out the worst in so many for the sport they love. Uh, we'll be including the links uh, to Amazon uh, below uh, so everyone can go out and grab a copy, leave a review and, and tell Chris uh, what, what you think about, you know, what, what sounds like an absolutely tremendous amount of work. Um, so I'll be very interested to see myself that as well. Uh, we've also had Flash Goals, Steve Carson, a friend of the show, and our regular and my co-host, Peter Kenny Jones, and I have been your host, Farrell Keeling. Stay tuned next week, where we'll be hopefully be discussing another win against Wolves and a brighter outlook on the remainder of the season. For now, we have been the Empire of the Cup podcast. Take care.